Good morning. Man, after, uh, I was just ready for Luke to just preach. Like, <laughs> what an announcement. I'll tell you what, I'd, we should always do the announcements that way. I don't know. Uh, man, that just got me excited. Uh, is anybody excited for Kingdom Pursuit coming up? Yeah, man, me too. And uh, I just so agree with everything Luke said. One, uh, like one statement that I just believe to the core of my being is that one encounter can change the world. And uh, I think it just takes one, one moment with God, one person willing to let God get a hold of their lives, and it'll start to change your world and your family's world and your friend's world. And it, it, like, it just like, boom, just happened. I mean, just look at so many people in the Bible, you know? Like, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm very, very excited for next weekend. I hope I don't get in trouble, but I'm gonna move this forward. I felt so far from you. No. <laughs> Three feet closer, and I'm just like, oh, we're in this together. All right, well, I've got a fun passage for us today, so I'm just going to uh, read that, and we're going to jump right in. Uh, we're, in we're continuing our series in Following the King. We're in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 45. So uh, you can follow along with me in your own Bible, or you can look at the screen behind me, or you can use your phone, or you know, however, or you can just sit and listen quietly. Whatever you're, you know, pick your poison. Says this, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." Who's excited for today's message? Woo! Yeah, me too. <laughs> so uh, my, my title for today, if you're into titles or you take notes and you want to put this at the top of your page, is Prophets and Kings and Demons, Oh My. <laughs> Prophets and Kings and Demons, Oh My. And uh, man, I'll tell you what, that was uh, just about my reaction when I read this passage uh, this week as I was in preparation and I don't know about you, but I'm just filled with questions as I like start to look at this. You know, like, um, you know, like first, like Jesus says, like only an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. It's like, what? <laughs> Is it wrong to ask God to, for signs or to show up or or to do miracles in 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 our lives and the world around us? What about the times when people, like people that are kind of lifted up as heroes in the Bible, ask for a sign, like Gideon? 
He asks for a sign, or, or people like Thomas, who's like, I'll believe once I can put my finger in the, the nail hole of Jesus' hand. And then, like, all the stuff of Jonah and the, the Queen of the South, like, what even is that? Judgment, can't wait to talk about that. And then, as if that's not all just kind of, like, you know, cryptic and weird enough, Jesus just, like, kind of just starts talking about demons and what happens to them when they get cast out of a person. And, like, did he change topics? Is he still talking to them? And it's like, what is going on? How does all this relate? Well, if you had any of those thoughts, welcome to my week. And uh, just, I don't know how many conversations I had, like, what do you think of this? And I was like, I don't know, I'm just glad you're preaching and not me. Uh, sweet. Thank you, Van. Um, but I, th I think I learned some really, really interesting stuff this week, so I'm, I'm excited to, to jump in and kind of untangle this together. Uh, but first, I think that... Um, you know, we've been in chapter 12 of this passage for quite some time. In fact, since October. So, you know, we've, we've, we've taken some breaks in the series and, and whatnot for the holidays. But I think it's, it, it's really easy, you know, every week after week, we're talking about kind of small sections of, uh, of the story of Matthew. And it'd be really easy to kind of get lost in the, like, the, you know, as we look at microsections, we kind of miss the, the meta-narrative that's going on. And so I just want to recap chapter 12 um, at like a 10,000-foot view for us uh, before we really jump into this passage. So uh, chapter 12 starts with Jesus on the Sabbath day walking through a field with his disciples, and the Pharisees see him, and they're like, why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, that doesn't really count as work. And they kind of have this whole thing, and, and uh, Jesus says, uh, something greater than the temple is here, and he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. So he's making some pretty big claims about himself right out the gate on this Sabbath day. Um, and the Pharisees aren't a big fan of it. Then he goes into the synagogue, and he heals this man who has a crippled hand, which again, they're like, that's kind of work on the Sabbath. And he's like, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? And... Um, at that point, they're pretty ticked, the Pharisees. And so it tells us they go out and conspire against him to destroy him. So that should, like, let's just like kind of bookmark that statement. The Pharisees are not in a good mood with Jesus, and they are conspiring to destroy him uh, right, off the gate, right out the gate in chapter 12. So Jesus is like, you know, he's kind of aware of this, so he's just like, let's, let's withdraw from this place. They leave, and... Uh, he and his disciples go, but then tons of people follow him. I mean, he just healed a guy in the middle of the synagogue. You know, like everybody saw it. It was, it was a pretty big deal. And uh, he, uh, it says that he heals everyone who comes to him. And so tons of miracles are happening on this day. And then he tells them, uh, don't tell anybody about this. And, and that fulfills some Old Testament prophecy. But then what happens kind of right in the middle of that is this demon-oppressed man gets brought to Jesus, and it's manifesting in the fact that this man is blind and mute, so he can't see, he can't talk, and Jesus heals him right there. The demon leaves, the guy sees, he starts talking. It's like, I mean, what an exciting, amazing, like revival is happening on this Sabbath day around Jesus, right? I mean, that just tends to happen wherever Jesus goes. But the Pharisees see this, 
And like, they're just not having it. They're not very happy with him. Uh, so they're, they're back and they accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. They're like, you are only casting out demons by the power of Satan. Nice comeback, man. Um, and Jesus kind of like gives them like a, you know, a verbal smackdown-ish kind of thing. Um, and uh, he has, you know, he has his rebuttal. And then he talks about good trees and bad trees. And this is what Van shared about last week. And, you know, the good tree bears good fruit, the bad tree bad fruit. And, and how it is just like that with us. And, uh, you know, from the, from the evil heart comes forth evil and good heart comes forth good and all that. And, and essentially he's telling the Pharisees they're bad trees. So they're, they're like, uh, we're kind of in the middle of this like toe-to-toe matchup between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they're kind of going back and forth, uh, the Pharisees challenging who Jesus claims he is, and Jesus kind of not really having it. And so as I read through this chapter, I get the sense that this is kind of one continuous string of events, or at least Matthew, the author, put it together in such a way that we read it as one continuous string of events. Because uh, I didn't know this until like I was like 24, but uh, in the Bible, like we have Bibles, there's like all those numbers, and there's the big numbers and the little numbers, and then there's the headings and stuff. The numbers and the headings weren't there. So like I think that uh, as we read, like imagine reading this without like the sub-chapters showing up. I mean, we're reading one continuous story here. And so... I'd imagine that this, uh, imagine this whole thing, all of chapter 12 has taken place over maybe just a couple hours, or at least that's the sense that we're supposed to have. And so with that, we jump into our section, where the Pharisees uh, respond to him after he calls them bad trees, producing evil fruit. Uh, And they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So essentially, what it might look like on the surface is that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're like, prove that you're the Messiah. Now, if you just heard my recap of chapter 12, you'd maybe recognize that this is like a little bit of a ridiculous ask. Jesus, show us a sign. Yeah, you healed the guy at the synagogue. You healed all those people that came to you. We just saw you cast out a demon and you know, we accused you of being Satan. But like, could you just show us a sign? I would argue that their motives were not to prove that he was the Messiah, but they're looking for more reasons to say he isn't. And they're, they're, they're trying to build their case as they conspire to destroy him. And Jesus sees right through this. Um, and, and in this, they, they kind of prove their point, his point of this last statement, that from the evil inside of you comes evil. And so this is not simply a genuine question that's being asked. This is like an attempted manipulation by the Pharisees. And so Jesus responds to that with three brief stories to illustrate how blind they are to what God is actually doing in their midst. Uh, He starts with talking about Jonah and the queen of the south. You know, for Jonah, he says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. He he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
So a quick recap of the story of Jonah, if you're unfamiliar. It's been a while since you've seen the VeggieTales movie. <laughs> Jonah is kind of this reluctant prophet. The word of God comes to him and says, go to the Ninevites. Go to the men of Nineveh, which you should know, uh, Nineveh is not part of Israel. It's part of the Assyrian Empire. So these were, I mean, this is like the, the future oppressors of Israel, like the, the neighbors to the north with a really, really bad reputation um, that are just known for wickedness and being evil. And, and it's not like God is saying, my prophet, go talk to the king of your nation who should be surrendered to me. He's like, go to this Gentile, the, the capital city of, of this Gentile uh, empire and just, you know, tell him stop being mean. But so they're like this opposing empire. They, they have this like really, really big, bad reputation and they're, they're just known for, for torture and inhumanely treating people. And, and I'd imagine that Jonah's like, oh yeah, me, the prophet from you know, Israel, I'll go to my enemies and say, stop being bad. And they're probably gonna torture and, and be inhumane to me, right? So I mean, it's, it, it's understandable that Jonah wants to run away, so he does. And then there's this whole storm thing that happens. I'm not going to go into great detail. Jonah is four chapters. You could probably listen to it on your way home if you're interested in, in the, the details of the story. But uh, ultimately, he gets swallowed by this big fish. And he spends three days and three nights inside the fish before it shoots him out onto the land. And this, uh, in, you know, back to Jesus' story, Jesus is essentially calling his death and resurrection before it happens. Like, it's no surprise to him the trajectory that he's headed on. It's all part of the plan. And so he's like prophesying what will come, that he will give his life freely, uh, be killed, be in the heart of the earth for three days and resurrect from the dead. Just in, you know, Jonah uh, is a picture of that, that he's all but dead inside a giant fish and then comes, comes back out. So Jonah, uh, Jonah repents for running from God and then ultimately goes to Nineveh um, and preaches repentance and, and the whole city repents. And not even just the city, but like even their animals are forced to repent and it's like, it's actually in there. So that, that's the story of Jonah. And then, then he also mentions this queen of the south. Uh, he says... For she came, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south or what we know as the queen of Sheba from the Old Testament, that story is in 1 Kings chapter 10. I should have written that down to be sure, but it's, it's that one. Thank you. So, so the queen of Sheba, she hears about like the wisdom of Solomon and, and how like just like incredible his kingdom is, how, you know, how wise and how, how majestic. All, all the, like she hears these like amazing stories about King Solomon. And so she travels a really long way to visit him. And when she visits, she says like, oh my gosh, the stories I heard were only half of what is actually true here. She's blown away by his wisdom and his splendor. But even more than that, She's blown away by the prosperity of Israel. She, like, she's like, look at the food on your table. Look at the, the, the way even your servants are dressed. Like She just like, cannot believe what she is seeing, which ultimately is the blessing of God on Israel. And just to put this in like, 
for our understanding, like this is like, she's not like a nobody. She's, she ain't no scrub. Like she is like super wealthy, powerful ruler as well. I mean, like just picture, you know, insert billionaire of our time, you know, Musk or Zuckerberg or, or whoever. Like this is like one of them going to visit someone and being like, oh my gosh, what? That is like, that is wealth. That is blessed. I mean, just like blown away. For reference, I mean, this was just a quick Google search. I don't know if we trust it or not, but uh, it, in modern dollars, some people would say that Solomon is worth somewhere around $2.3 trillion today. So, I mean, just like mind-blowing. And it wasn't just him. It was the entire nation was just in so, so blessed. She's literally so blown away that it, it says that her breath was taken away when she sees the way God has blessed Israel. And, and ultimately, she literally responds by praising God. And um, according to like, you know, Jewish um, literature outside of the Bible, they would suggest that she actually converts to Judaism because of what she saw in Israel. So then, these two stories, they're kind of sandwiched around this topic of judgment. To recap, verses 41 and 42, it says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So ultimately, human history is a story that is marching to a conclusion. We are headed to an ending, the end of this current age, and that's marked by the judgment of God. All will stand before Jesus as the judge. Now, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south themselves won't do the judging, but they will be held up as an example of those who had tender hearts and responded to the call of God. And Jesus announces to the Pharisees, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. These two minor characters that like convinced, you know, Gentiles, like the, the evil of the most evil, the wealthy of the most wealthy, to convert, to, to follow the ways of Yahweh, Something greater is here. And ultimately, in Jesus' life, he is throwing out a lifeline to all who would receive it. That when, when every person stands before God, they can say, I, I'm, I'm with Jesus. And he's offering them a way into life with God. Because ultimately, our world, everything, all of creation is headed towards the restoration of all things. And Jesus came to invite all who would receive him to be restored to God. But the sad truth is that those who reject it will remain in the kingdom of darkness and suffer the same fate that Nineveh was faced with had they not responded to Jonah's call. That is destruction. So on that happy note, Jesus continues 
And he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What a weird parable. Weird story here. You know, like, perhaps you've heard this uh, used in some form of, like, demonology and, like, what happens when a demon leaves a person and, and all that. And, you know, I, I think that that's probably, like, a valid way to understand this story to some degree, but more as, like, a, like a secondary reading. I, the primary thing is, like, Jesus is, is saying this to the Pharisees to illustrate something, and I think it's actually connected to the previous two stories, and Jesus is trying to drive the, po- the point home. And the point of these stories is ultimately that the listeners are missing something. They've, they've asked for a sign, but they're seeking the wrong thing. The prophets in the Old Testament, like Jonah, they functioned as God's mouthpiece to Israel, and in some cases surrounding nations, um, mostly calling people to repentance, to to leave their wicked ways and and to follow the way of Yahweh, but also looking ahead to that, 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 the the coming age, the new age, where where God will restore all things and he will be king and and there will be no more tears and and, and all that, all the beautiful things that we, we long to see. And then, so that's that's kind of the prophets, but then uh, the reign of King David and King Solomon. He's mentioned Solomon here. This is viewed as like the glory days of Israel. So any, uh, any Israelite at this time would, would be aware of that, of like the time when they were the most prosperous they've ever been. Um, and ultimately, you know, this is when they were the empire, they weren't oppressed, which is their current situation. They're oppressed by the empire of Rome. And they viewed this as the kingdom of God on earth. And they saw it as like, this is what happens when the blessing of God is on his people. There's prosperity for all. Not just our king who's wise and and wealthy, but even the servants in his house are well-dressed and taken care of and looked after. And so ultimately, when uh, the people of Israel and the, the Pharisees were looking for a Messiah, one who would lead them into this new age, they probably had this in mind. It's gonna be like going back to the glory days. And so they're looking for a son of David who will ultimately lead them in triumph over their enemies and uh, and, and usher in this this time of of glory for Israel again. But what we know is that that's not the specific, this like physical kingdom on earth, this like political power is not Jesus' aim. The interesting thing, you know, Jesus talks about a prophet who who called Nineveh to repent. He talks about Solomon who represented the kingdom of God on earth. Mark, another gospel writer, sums up Jesus' message like this. Says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or in the good news. So Jesus' main message is like the marrying of the two illustrations that he gives here. The prophets calling people to repentance. Solomon demonstrating and establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And he's like, 
That's what's happening here. And the people of Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of a reluctant prophet. The queen of Sheba was dazzled by a mere picture of what the kingdom of God would look like. But something greater than Jonah and something greater than Solomon was here. The true king was actually before them. The one who's not just called, who's not just called them to, bring, uh, to come to repentance, but is actually holding the power of forgiveness. The one who's not just talking about what the kingdom would look like, but he's demonstrating the kingdom. He's showing the kingdom, not just in, in words or in, or in stories, but he's actually pushing back the forces of darkness by the authority of the kingdom of God. They have asked for a sign, not realizing that Jesus himself is the sign they are seeking. Commentator William Barclay says, says this, yet we should not miss the central point here. You're asking for a sign, I am God's sign. You have failed to recognize me. The Ninevites recognized God's warning in Jonah. The Queen of Sheba recognized God's wisdom in Solomon. So the clearest sign that God had ever sent to his people after years and years of, of prophets and, and kings was Jesus. In John 1.18 in the NLT, it describes Jesus like this. No one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So he is like the clearest sign that God has ever placed on the earth, demonstrating and showing who the Father is. They're asking for a sign, but Jesus is the sign. And so the problem that's going on here, that they're trying to order Jesus around like some kind of like show pony or, or, or magician or, or whatever. They're commanding him like a genie, saying, do this for us, do that. But they fail to see who he is that he is Lord. Because it's not by the demands of men that brings forth miracles, but it's the mercy of God being expressed and extended through Jesus. And he says, you guys are like a house prepared for the Messiah. Like you, Israel, like, like this is the aim of the Pharisees, actually. And they, kind of, they miss the forest for the trees. Like their whole sect is formed around the idea that if we can just get Israel to obey all the laws of God, that we can just live righteously, if we can just do good things, if we can clean up the house, then the Messiah will come. But the thing is, the sign is here. They're like a people who have prepared the house. They've, they've cast out, out the demon before, and, and, and now they're in order, ready to receive whatever it is that, uh, that God has for them, and then God sends him. And rather than receiving him and inviting him in, the God of Israel, who's visiting uh, his people again, is being rejected. And because of this rejection they are destined to a fate worse than before. It's like a demon that returns and finds, oh, nothing's inhabiting this house anymore. I'll bring back seven of my friends even more wicked than I am. 
Because Jesus is among them, they have a greater sense of accountability than before. You know, just like the Ninevites, destruction was coming. They deserved destruction. They, they were wicked and awful. As an aside, the, the ancient Greeks, like a few hundred years later, look back on them and call Nineveh sin city. If the ancient Greeks are saying something's bad and sinful, you know it's bad and sinful. Nineveh deserved destruction, whether they knew it or not. They were accountable. But how much more accountable were they when Jonah said, the God of gods is going to destroy you unless you turn from your ways? And they respond, and they turn. And ultimately, what's happening here is this is like, we're coming to like this massive conclusion in this argument between Jesus and the Pharisees where he's saying, you've, you've missed the point. You're rejecting me and therefore you're rejecting God's reign. Another commentator, Warren Carter, says this. So it will be with this generation which has not taken advantage of the opportunity to transfer from Satan's reign to God's empire. In rejecting God's purposes, the hold or reign of the devil over them is even greater. They've been offered the lifeline. They've said, no, I can tread water. I'll figure it out myself. Rather than just submitting to what God was offering them, they dug in their heels and in that invited something far worse than ever before. So they were seeking a sign, but ultimately, Jesus is the sign and the invitation to be restored to God. Back when I was in college, I, uh, I went to like a small Christian school, it doesn't exist anymore, big sad, Cincinnati Christian University closed down a few years ago. <laughs> Micah was there too. And uh, this was a school that, theologically speaking, was not into the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, as, as kind of a general rule, like they were cessationists, their professors were kind of taught along that line of thinking. And, and pretty early in, I had a, like, like I came in believing that and, and totally believing that, you know, the gifts of the Spirit weren't for today, even as far as like, it's demonic or like people who, you know, like stuff Luke was talking about, people getting slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues. I was like, they're just faking it. They just need attention, you know, whatever, like, um, or, or at worst, it's Satan. Um, but pretty early into my college career, I had this kind of theological shift where I started to believe in the gifts of the spirit, um, was kind of convinced theologically by just, you know, reading the Bible um, and one of the things I ran into, because this was kind of a big deal, at least in the guys' dorms, um, and, and almost everybody kind of around like knew like, oh, Jordan's becoming one of those people, Pentecostals or whatever. And, uh, and I mean, it was like a really big deal. Uh, to the point, a friend of mine and I, we would like, this is how exciting Saturday nights at Christian schools were. Uh, just like we'd sit at you know, either end of a table, each of us with stacks of books and commentaries, just like, and, our, and our Bibles open in front of us, just like debating back and forth about like, 
are the signs for today or not, and you know, all this stuff. And ultimately, like a thing that I heard a lot was that my friends were concerned that I was seeking signs like an evil and adulterous generation. And maybe, you've, maybe someone's told that to you. Maybe you've, you've heard that before, or, or maybe just even as you read it, you're kind of like, okay, like, is it okay to seek the miraculous and pray for healing and, and all that stuff? Um, and, and man, I get that, and it can be kind of confusing, but I, I just want to say very clearly, that's not what this passage is about. That's not what Jesus has in mind at all. And in fact, Paul, the apostle, later writes in 1 Corinthians that we should eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially that we would prophesy. So he's not saying, don't seek after the things of the kingdom of God. Don't don't demonstrate the, the power of God. But I think the bigger question for us here is what are we filling our house with? What are you filling your house with? Because as I was preparing, I thought of at least three types of people that might hear this message. The first type is someone, he, he's just not in your house. He's on the outside, similar to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had tidied up. They had strict adherence to the law, but they didn't fill themselves with anything. And ultimately, they weren't willing to allow him into their house. And there's a chance that there's some of us in here who are like that. You're, you're maybe like interested in Jesus. You kind of hang around and you, you, you hear the messages and maybe you like the music or, or maybe you sit in the hallway during the music because it's too loud. I don't know. But you haven't let Jesus into your house. The second would be he's a guest in the sitting room. You've opened the door, but you've just said, Come visit. You know, you, maybe you've said the prayer, you've raised your hand after a service or, or whatever, and you, you've said, yes, come see my tidied up cleaning room, my, my tidied up living room. Sit on my couch, and then, okay, it's Monday morning, go on, get out, Jesus. You know, maybe you've said he can have Sunday mornings, but you haven't given him full access. You haven't said, Jesus, you can be Lord of my finances. Jesus, you can be Lord of my friendships. Jesus, you can be Lord of my... F- my, my relationships and my, my, my marriage, my parenting, whatever, you know, fill in the blank with the category. But ultimately, he wants that access. The aim of Jesus is not just to get you in the door or just get into the door of you, but it's to actually live with you, to inhabit in your heart. He wants, to, he wants access to all of it, there's a, a saying I heard recently that I just love. It says he's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Yeah. Following Jesus is not just about saying yes once, it's about saying yes every morning and yes every afternoon and every evening. And yes, every time I, I fly off the handle with my kids and yes, every time the, 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 uh, QR code comes up to, for offering. And yes, every time I encounter that person at work that just drives me crazy, he wants access to every part of you. So are there areas of your life not fully surrendered to Jesus? 
And then the third person is someone, he's an inhabitant. You've given him full access to everything. Maybe not perfectly, maybe sometimes you shoo him out of the room, but ultimately you've got a heart willing to allow him in. And the third one, I think that's Jesus' desire for your life. He wants full access. There's another place in, uh, in Matthew where uh, Jesus describes us like a house. It's in Matthew 7. We were probably here like four years ago at the pace we're going through this study <laughs> on Matthew. But it's kind of how he ends his, uh, his, his, his massive, like the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of like, these are like, this is the teaching of Jesus. He ends it this way. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not, and, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Think ultimately, like to simplify following Jesus down to like the, the bare minimum thing, this is it. Hear what he's saying and respond to it. What is he saying? What am I gonna do about it? These are the basics of discipleship. This is the, these are the basics of the person who will allow Jesus to inhabit their life. Storms will come. That's guaranteed. Following Jesus is not like a get out of all bad things in life free card. It's a stand strong in the bad things, free card. And ultimately, if you're finding yourself in a a place of like calamity or disaster in certain areas of your life, I'd ask, are you fully surrendering that over to Jesus? Are you entirely trusting him in those areas? But as we conclude, I just wanna take a moment here uh, and, and consider for yourself. So I'd invite you to, you know, Sit, get comfortable, close your eyes, awkwardly stare at me, that's fine too. Um, and just position yourself for like a quiet minute. We still have a few minutes before you have to go get your kids, before you have to enter in whatever thing you're, you're sheltered from here. And just consider for yourself, which person am I? Have I invited Jesus into my house? Have I only given him access to the sitting room? Are there areas of my life that Jesus wants access to? Are there parts of my heart he wishes to touch with his merciful, loving, healing touch? All right, would you stand with me as we end?
this time, I'd like to invite the prayer teams forward. You can come just stand right up front here. If, uh, if in that, that moment of quiet, you feel like something popped up in your heart, if you felt like, I've never decided to follow Jesus, these people up here are the next people you should talk to. If you felt like there's like an area of my heart that I've not given fully over to Jesus and you want uh, someone to pray with you about that, come up, come up and receive prayer. It's, uh, it's totally free. It's totally worth the time. Uh, but with that, let's pray to end. Just Father, thank you so much for this body of brothers and sisters. Just ask for your favor and blessing to come upon each, each person and household represented here. Would you come and move in our lives? Give us tender hearts to respond when you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.